Good morning, everybody. It is great to be here together to worship God again today. It almost doesn't feel right to say good morning after being at 8 a.m. for so long. It doesn't really feel like morning anymore. But it's good to see everyone who's here, and I'm excited to study God's Word together. As I was getting ready for this lesson, I think sometimes we as speakers can feel a lot of pressure to say things in just the right way, to get people to see them for the value that they have. Not necessarily that we as speakers really understand it beyond you all so well, but that I don't ever want to get in the way of what God's message is, because God's message is quick and powerful. It is like a two-edged sword that, that cuts, and it, and it teaches us in ways that I never want to get in the way of. So I don't want to get in the way of that this morning, and so that's why I want to remind us as, as a body that we all have the individual responsibility to take this. My own benefit from this lesson is going to come from my individual assessment, my own self-assessment, and I pray that you will do the same as we consider these things and, and hopefully take them through the week as this is the only service we have, uh, but to be introspective with these things because uh, none of us are there. We're all on our way, and uh, I think we have some valuable lessons to learn from this passage in Luke chapter 18. We're going to cover the events from Luke 18 to verse 18 through Luke 19, verse 9. And in these passages, as I was studying, doing my daily Bible reading, I noticed a little bit of a pattern that may not be profound to you. I thought it was interesting, and so I'm going to share uh, the pattern of these three blind men. We have three different circumstances and I think we have some blindness in the three of these men. All right. So, I can move here either. So, in verse thirty-one of of uh, Luke chapter thirty of Luke chapter eighteen, it says, "And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished.'" For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. So Jesus is, is talking to his 12 who are there with him, his close disciples, the apostles. And he says, as he's going there, that, that some bad things are going to happen here. Not necessarily bad for God's whole scheme and God's whole plan, but bad in the sense that he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. This is not the picture, remember, as we consider the Jews, as we consider even his followers. This is not the picture that they had of Jesus. They had this mighty man that was going to lead them into the future, maybe make a nation of Israel strong again. And, and he says this, that they're going to flog him, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Sorry, it's hard to see. Verse 34 says, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what he said. This is one of the centerpieces of what, I'm going to, of what I want to study this morning. This is in between a couple situations that I think key in on this idea of not understanding these things and kind of having a mental blindness, a spiritual blindness. A couple years ago when I came and spoke here, we talked about Elisha and the situation there in the Old Testament where God took away the sight of the people as a picture of their spiritual blindness. This idea of blindness is a theme we read of throughout Scripture. And here in this, this section of verses, it reminds me that even the closest people to Jesus who were there with him every day, they were blind. They were blind to what was going on with his plan, and that they, 
would need to understand uh, what, was, what was really happening in the bigger picture if they were going to survive spiritually. Okay, so we have this centerpiece, and then second, and then around that, we have first this a literal blind man. The three blind men we have is first a literal blind man, the second one is a willfully blind man, and number three, the unwilling to be blind man. So these are the three people we're going to consider as we start. And as the other centerpiece, we're going to talk about this literal blind man. In Luke 18, verse 35, it says this, As he, speaking of Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And he heard a crowd going by. He inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were, those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So as Jesus is coming into Jericho, this guy is sitting there begging, and he hears this crowd coming by, because remember, everywhere Jesus went, there was this crowd. And he knows who it is, and he cries out to Jesus, and he mentions that he is the Son of David. Now, as I think about this blind man, I think about the culture in which he lived. There are a lot of supports in our culture for people who are blind for other areas of disability. Just trying to picture what this man's life would have been like, it's hard to really fathom. This man was a blind man who had to, it seems, beg for the things that he had. And when he makes this, he, when he points out Jesus, son of David, it makes me wonder how much time this man spent considering the word of God. Because he would have had to know his Old Testament to understand what this meant for Jesus to be the son of David. He was proclaiming that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel by calling him that. It's something that, that the Pharisees and many of them didn't, under, didn't really recognize in Jesus. But it makes me wonder how much time this man sat there. All he could do was beg for what he had. All he could do was sit and wait and ask and consider maybe the promises of God that would come to him. Eventually. And he sees Jesus coming. He cries out to him. He says, have mercy on me. And he goes on to say in verse 40, And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And you know, this man might be thinking it's kind of obvious. Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I think this is kind of a centerpiece for these verses because it seems to be a picture of what God wants us to have happen in our spiritual lives. This man lived blind. He knew that he was blind. He knew he was missing he, he knew that he was waiting for something. He was trying to reach out to have his physical sight regained. And when he came to God and when he came to Jesus and asked him to give him his sight, after he recovered his sight, he went along glorifying God. And I think that's a picture of what God wants for us. God wants to see our own spiritual blindness, our own deadness in sin. He wants to, us to receive that sight by understanding the gospel and believing on it, and then to go on our way glorifying Him. That's what we are here today for, is people who have received sight 
and belief and understanding of the word of God and now come to glorify him. And so I think this is kind of a picture of the model that God wants us to see. But what this showed, this event showed, is that God can heal blindness. Okay? The key point is that God can heal blindness. Now, let's second, let's talk about the willfully blind man. So this man uh, is often described as young. He's described as someone who's rich, and he's described as a ruler. And those come from a combination of the Gospels. Uh, Mark mentions, doesn't mention either of these things, but Matthew says he was young. Uh, Luke says he was a ruler. Uh, Mark does say that he was rich. He was very wealthy. So we put these together, and, uh, and this is what the passage says in Mark 10, verse 17. I picked Mark's account to go through this, even though it's the same one Luke's, because Mark's has an interesting detail here. It says this, And as, and as he was sitting, setting out on his journey, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I want us to get our... We're transitioning for that, from that previous blind man to this man. And he had just, Jesus has just been talking to the, the little children, and he spent time with them. And it's following these events that maybe this man saw what Jesus had done with the little children, and he was in awe. That Jesus took the time with them. And, and, he, and he was upset that people wanted him to leave the little children. Jesus come, is approached by this man. And he comes running. Mark is the only one who records that he came running. And he knelt before him. To me, that speaks volumes of this man's heart. It shows how earnest he is. And that helps me paint a better picture of what Jesus is going to say to him. So he starts out by saying, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he comes to them with the, the, with the, with the with a mentality that is submissive to Jesus, recognizing his authority as a ruler himself. Now, as I understand, he's called a real ruler, and he is likely an official of some sort, an official of the synagogue, of the local synagogue. And he probably wasn't Roman, because a Roman would not likely approach uh, a Jewish teacher like this. So he's probably a, uh, a Jewish leader in the synagogue. In verse 18, it says this, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. As I understand, the rabbis at the time would not want to be called good because they reserved that title for God alone. And so Jesus is not necessarily saying, Don't call me that. But he wants this man to really realize what he's saying. He doesn't want him to superficially just call him this. He wants to point out what he's really saying when he calls Jesus good. Verse 19, he says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So this man comes to Jesus, and he says to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So he comes up to him, and he is obviously, uh, he's an official, probably in the, in the local synagogue, so he's been raised in this. He says, I've done these things from my youth. He knows the commandments. And Jesus even points out, I think, those commandments to emphasize the focus of this man. You know these commandments, and these were from the old law. And this man was living under the old law. He says, you know these commandments. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept these all from my youth. 
And I think this is telling because this man comes running to him aware that he's still missing something. His conscience is bothering him to the point that even though he knows he's kept the commandments, supposedly kept the commandments, he is still lacking something. Verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Now, as I understand this word, uh, looking at him is in the Greek, in, in blepo, or it's a, it's a penetrating look. He stopped and really considered and, and focuses, focused his attention on this man. And he loved him. And this love is, a, is agape, which is the highest kind of love, right? It's not just the feeling that passes. It is an enduring love that sees the true value in somebody and cares about them beyond the moment. But it's in, it's in a uh, verb tense that is implying that it's an entrance into a new condition. The verb tense is, is basically saying that Jesus, seeing this, he grows to love him for what he sees in front of him. He grows to love this man's heart, obviously, who comes running and wants to, and, and is coming to Jesus for a better understanding. And Jesus has compassion on him and loves him. And he says, you lack one thing. So what if you were this man right now and Jesus was talking to you? I would be pretty keen to listen in on what he's about to say. You lack one thing. And what is that thing Jesus says? Verse 21. He goes on to say, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the one thing that Jesus said for him to do was to sell all that he has and give to the poor. I think we make this point clear. I want to reiterate, Jesus has not commanded all of us to give everything we have to the poor. Jesus saw this man. He knew his heart. And he saw that there was one thing holding him back from full submission. There was one thing standing in the way that he wouldn't give up. And Jesus identified that. And he says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. So that list of commandments that he had been following was great. He needed to be doing those things. But he was missing that step of submission and where Jesus says, come follow me, that is the point at which he would have that treasure in heaven being stored up. But he was not at that point. Because that saying disheartened him. And he was sad about it. The point is that he was not ready to surrender fully to Jesus. And that's why Jesus originally wanted him to notice, when you call me good teacher, come to me and realize that you're talking to deity that you need to submit to fully. So conclusion number one about this, this man, we're calling the willfully blind man, right? Because we're calling him willfully blind because he comes to Jesus, he is told what to do, and he knows what he needs to do, but he's saddened because of that. He's saddened because he's not ready to give, to give it up. So conclusion number one is that he loves his money too much. That's kind of a surface level, obvious conclusion, right? Right? So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, uh, the writer there speaks of this idea. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Not the root of all evil, a root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This, this uh, phrase right here to me is really indicative of where this man is at. Because he seemed to be a Jew. He followed those commandments his whole life. Think about yourself. How long you've been in the church. Think about how long you've kept the commandments of God. And consider your, your, your own life in light of this man. He wandered away from the faith. And, and he was pierced through with many pangs. You saw those pangs of sorrow he went through. Because he left disappointed that, that he was not ready to give up his own wealth. He was disheartened and he was sorrowful. Conclusion number two, and know if we're going to kind of take a deeper look at this, is that what really happened is he misplaced value. That's kind of a sub point of this, is that he didn't really understand the value that he was considering. And on Investopedia, I looked up a definition here because my, my business education tells me that value is is relative to us. So Investopedia says that the preferences of a given person determine the economic value of a good or service and the trade-offs that they will be willing to make to obtain it. This man showed where his value truly was. He valued his possessions in such a way that he was willing to step away from the Messiah. He was willing to turn away from the Great One who had come. Because his value, his self-assessed value that he was not willing to trade off to obtain eternal life, was his possessions. For us, where do we place our true value? Jesus said if he would have done this, he would have true treasures in heaven. And you read in Revelation about the riches that God has. You read about the promises that are for us. That if we own just a piece of the treasures that God has given in this life, that is nothing compared to the eternal treasures and the eternal blessing that God has for us in heaven. He misplaced his value because he would not fully surrender. What does that look like when people do see in Acts chapter 4 verse 32 through 35, we read of some people who did see where value truly lied. It says there, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. This is when the early church was being set up. It goes on to say, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed, it was distributed to each as any had need. Once again, do we have to all sell everything we have and give? No. We learn that from other accounts in the New Testament that they were not required to do this. But what it does show is it shows an awareness of where true value lies. The awareness that in order to serve others, or in, in, in order to, to uh, fully understand the value of their money and the people around them, they were willing to give up their own possessions in order to serve God's people. This is an example of awareness of where true value really lies. You know, today one of our modern... Uh, Mega millionaires is uh, Bill Gates. He has a projected net worth of something like $130 billion. But in the Old Testament, uh, Solomon, I looked up an estimate, and, and there was an estimate there, I don't know if this is true, that he, uh, he was a trillionaire because of all the great wealth that he had. You read in the Old Testament, it is 
It is amazing to hear about everything that was coming in all the time. It wasn't just that he owned things. If you read there, his constant income of gold and, and lumber and precious jewels was, was fascinating. And his conclusion in Ecclesiastes, after all of the, the statements about all is vanity, everything is vain, you know, everything is pointless. He had everything. He said this, the end of, all, the, end of the matter, all, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that's, that's what this rich man needed to realize. He knew about Solomon. He should have learned from the lesson that was there that true value does not lie in our possessions. Matthew 13, verse 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is one of the foundational teachings of Jesus and his kingdom, is that we should look at the gospel. We should look at what God offers us as if it's something so valuable that we would give up whatever, we, whatever would be necessary. Right? The phrase that you might not have to give up everything, but you should be ready to and willing to in order to serve God because that is a theme of the Bible. So we know that we need to work hard. We know that we need to earn a living, but we don't love our money. There's a balance always that needs to be struck. In Colossians 3, we're told to work heartily as if we were working for the Lord himself. We're told in Ecclesiastes verse 9, the wise man said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. To all, and in Proverbs 14, it says, All work, hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 12 says, Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. Another verse says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So it is clear from Scripture that we have to be willing to work. We have to be willing to put in the time, and, and our effort then uh, will be rewarded with enough to sustain us. God has promised us that. But the point is that we have to keep balance. We have to understand that we need the ambition to work hard, but then we have to trust in God. So we need to put, our, put effort to our work, but put our trust in God ultimately. There's always a balance to consider here. So what are we to do with our money then? 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's a facade in life. There's a facade that looks like a stable future, that looks like a strong foundation. Or, you know, when we go buy a house, a lot of times we want a concrete slab. We don't want uh, something that's uh, up off the ground where it's not stable. Life has facades that seem stable, but God has what is truly life for us. He says not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. I think this is clues in on what this, this rich man had in his heart. He was taking stability in the riches that he had. 
And I think it's easy to consider someone like him and call him out and, you know, sit back in our chair and look at the Bible and be like, man, I can't believe he would do that. I can't believe he would do that. Or to talk about people outside this building like they just need to do that. They need to do that. But what about us? Because when we make decisions in a vacuum like that, of course we would all want to choose Jesus. But what about our life? What about the situation that we're in where we are invested in something? Where our hand is on tight to grow it and to build it, are we willing to trust God with whatever comes? Because the reality is this man was an official, and it says he was a younger man. So to be in the position he was in is pretty impressive. And I'm sure it took a lot of time, it took a lot of education, it took a lot of work to get to where he was. He had pro- it says that he had a lot of property. So maybe he was really invested in what he was doing with his property, thinking about plans for the future, and that's not a bad thing. As I try to plan for the future, I am really uh, right now in a position where I'm trying to consider the long term. Taylor and I are looking into houses and stuff like that, so we're trying to make wise decisions. And it's easy in the process of getting my degree, investing money in continued education to try to to have enough to provide for a family, to have enough to uh, make sure we're not lacking. In that process, you can get emotionally invested so much that I need to be careful not to value the things I've put work into, the things that I worked my time to develop, to not value those and the stability that comes from uh, my job, my education, over what God has for me. Because that is what is a good foundation for the future. Yes, we must work hard, and yes, We have to provide for our own, as we've just read. But we have to remember that as we gain a tighter hold on the things we have in life, it can be harder to trust God sometimes with those things and with the future. So the question for us is, are you a conduit? Are you a container? What do you see? How do we see the the blessings from God? Because in that previous verse, it says that the goal of Our wealth should be to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share and to store up treasures for the future uh, in heaven. But for us, are we a conduit or are we a container? Are you something that causes God's blessings to flow through you or to flow to you? I think sometimes we can hold on and we can storehouse and it's good to save and be wise. The Proverbs tell us that. But we need to realize that our primary purpose is to be a vessel for serving others in life. And if we're just one to contain God's blessings, why would he continue to put something into that? If his blessings weren't going to go to others, why would he send his his blessings to a dead end? Are we a conduit or are we a container? Are we a river or are we a reservoir? Water by nature, as it continues to move, remains clean and pure, and you could walk up to a river like this, and there's a good chance you could drink out of that. When the water's moving, that's where when we're backpacking, we like to see. We'll stop at a spring where the water's moving, and we'll drink straight out of it. But where we don't drink, where we don't go near, is stagnant water. And I think there's a connection there for us in in the blessings that God has given us. Does God's blessing continue to flow through us, or do they dead end with us? Because the nature of wealth is that it can corrupt us. The love of money 
that keeps us from serving others with what we have can cause, like stagnant water, mosquito larvae to grow and uh, nepidae, which are water scorpions. It can grow bacteria that cause uh, cryptosporidium and cyclospora and E. coli and giardia. But when we have God's blessings flowing through us and we are a conduit that takes his blessings to other people and keeps that moving, we, we, in our own lives, will hopefully not become polluted by the effects of wealth that stops with us. So this man misplaced value. That was the second conclusion. The third conclusion is that he would not fully surrender. That is the bottom line, the big picture with this guy. He was not ready to fully surrender because that is something that God has a pattern of throughout the Bible. God wants us to fully surrender to him beyond all else. And this is exemplified in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham and Isaac. It says there, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Once again, this is not a decision in a vacuum. Abraham had waited his whole life into his old years beyond when it would have even been possible naturally to have a kid. He finally has the kid and now God tells him, I want you to sacrifice him. This was a test and this is a theme of the Bible. Are we, God's people, going to be willing to trust God with the things he has given us over everything else? goes on to say, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He didn't just get up there the whole way. He had his hand on the knife. So what they would do is they would slaughter the animal and their sacrifices and then they would offer them as, a, as an offering on the altar. So he was already there. He had his hand on the knife. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said again, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Abraham was an old man. He had a lot of time to develop his level of service and submission to God. We may not all be at a point where God is testing us with our own sacrificing our own children, so to speak, having that big of a trial to sacrifice for God. But this is a pattern that the Bible wants. When God calls us, he does not want us to stop at, I have done these commandments since my youth. I've done this and done that and done this. Because like the rich man, we're going to realize that's not enough. And if we're sincere enough, maybe today we're coming, running to Jesus, kneeling before him, knowing we're lacking something, knowing that it's not enough just to do the things that God has asked us to do, wrote. The pattern in the Bible is, will you fully surrender? Abraham was a devout man, but God still wanted to test him further. He wanted to see, are you willing to trust me with your most valuable possession? And Abraham passed that test. And he had that full surrender. 
And this is carried into the New Testament. It is the Old Testament, the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. This rich man came to Jesus with the mentality that wanted to do the things, and he wanted to know what else he had to do to check off to inherit eternal life. But the reality is Jesus wanted to flip it on him and say that he needed to give up. He needed to transition to a mentality of not just doing, but transforming with a priority shift that would put God at the forefront. After he turned away, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who, are, have, for those who have wealth to inherit the kingdom of God. This must have been an earnest statement, a statement of disappointment, because Jesus said he loved him. He looked at him, and he loved him in that moment. He goes on in verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. Another translation says astonished. They were like, whoa. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. The point of this is not to get us to be afraid of how hard it's going to be but to realize that it's not just stepping in to a list that we have to fulfill. We, as Christians, have to have a mentality that I'm going to be transformed today, and I'm going to surrender whatever I have that is necessary to surrender to God. Because when we have that mentality, then we are becoming truly converted. That is when we will have treasure stored up in heaven where we'll inherit eternal life. Verse 25, Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Right? That's the logical conclusion. He's basically saying like, Sorry, you can't do it. Right? No, he's not. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. I used to think that this was more saying... You know, God can help you do whatever you need to do to be saved. But I think it's, that's true. But I think that the frame that he's shifting is this man was trying to do it on his own. But he had to have God at the forefront, God to surrender to, for this even to be possible. You can't go through life and not fully surrender to God and truly be converted. And be ready to surrender whatever is necessary. He was willing to do what he needed to do until it came to the part where God was at the forefront. And that is going to be uncomfortable in our lives. So the three conclusions about this man, he loved his money too much, he misplaced value, and he would not fully surrender. So for us, only you really know. Only you really know. What is it that you would not give up for Jesus? That's, a, I'm sure, a continual question we have to ask ourselves but the more I studied this, the more the smaller and smaller I got. So finally, we have our unwilling to be blind man is the last one we're going to consider. In Luke 19, he goes on to say, So he ran on ahead of... Oh, that's the next, sorry. He, in, he entered Jericho and was passing through. So Jesus is now in Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So this man was blind, you might say, because of his stature, his situation. We had a man who was willfully blind, but this man cannot see 
because of his position he's in. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. I'm not going to say a lot about Zacchaeus, but I love his attitude. That even though he couldn't see, he didn't stop there. He had a mentality that was going to get there. He was going to see Jesus. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. That's one of the few points I want to make about Zacchaeus. Is sometimes it can be posed like our faith is something we can't control. You either have it or you don't, and you're stuck there. But this man, Zacchaeus, is evidence that you can gain sight if you really go after it and you really care. Verse 7, And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be in the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And, I have, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is in contrast, direct contrast to the rich man who would not give up. This man is showing that he has sight. He was not willing to stay blind because he's saying, I'm going to find a place where I can see Jesus. And he is obviously converted when he says that I'm ready to give. I'm ready to let go of my possessions and restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This was a big statement for him to say a chief tax collector was also a son of Abraham. They were not liked by the Jewish people. So our overview for this study is that God's people are going to have blindness. We learned that from the situation with his 12 disciples. They didn't understand. There was a theme of blindness there. But we learned from the, the literal blind man that God can heal our blindness. God has the power to take us from that place to sight. But it really comes down to surrender. Some of us will come to him with sincere hearts, but maybe not fully surrender. That rich man, he came to him and he got on his knees. He was, he was sincere, but he was not ready to fully surrender. And I underline on both of these, some of us, because I think it's easy to consider people outside this building and to not read the Bible with an introspective attitude. What is there that we will not give up and surrender? Some of us will surrender everything to him and gain everything, similar to what Zacchaeus did. And that's the reality that we have. Are we willing to fully surrender and to put our trust in God? And the other kind of sub-point was that how we handle money is a big indicator of where our trust lies. Because my future, where we, where we you know, find a home, investing in, in property, investing in our future, that's something I can really put a lot of thought and maybe even anxiety into. But the reality is that I must trust God beyond everything else and be willing to surrender to Him. That's our lesson for today. I hope you'll take these things and consider them for yourself uh, to learn from them and hope us grow closer to God and our full submission to Him. If you have... Today, you have not become a member of, of the body of Christ. You can do that today. You've heard a, a portion of the word. And this, this word that we talked about this morning included uh, the, the metaphor or the, the connection between Isaac being almost sacrificed by Abraham and the sacrifice that God made for us. God did not hold back the knife. He, he had his own son's sacrifice so that you and I could be saved. And that is the core of the gospel that we all can come to him because of what our Savior did for us.
We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.